You're listening to TIP. Really spread that risk out among your portfolio so you're not focusing on just one asset class at a time. You can certainly do that. But as we saw over the past year, if you focus too much on growth stocks, you probably have had a really rough 2022. On today's episode, I'm joined by Callie Cox. Callie is an investment analyst at eToro. Her work has been featured on CNBC, Bloomberg, The Financial Times, Barron's, among other publications. During this episode, Callie and I cover her thoughts on the current market environment, how millennials view cryptocurrencies versus older generations, how you can better position yourself financially during an inflationary environment, how community and camaraderie play into investing for retail investors, Callie's top tips for navigating today's real estate market, the advantages that millennials have in saving for retirement over older generations, and a whole lot more. During this episode, Kelly brings a ton of interesting and valuable insights related to the markets and building wealth. With that, I hope you enjoy today's episode with Kelly Cox. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And today, I'm joined by Callie Cox with eToro. Callie, welcome to the show. Hey, Clay. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. Callie, we're going to be talking about markets, real estate, and most importantly, millennials, You know what the show is focused on. Before we get kicked off to talk about these subjects, let's start with the markets. What is your general overview of the markets overall? And where are we at in this market correction? Yeah, man. Well, that's the most popular question I'm getting these days. I mean, have we hit the bottom? Are we about to rebound to the top? And I'm very honest about this. I have no clue what the future holds, but my job is to read clues when it comes to the markets and economic news. I'll do that. I'll talk to you a little bit about history. I love leaning on history and what's happened in the past uh, when it comes to what we've seen in markets lately, because there are still a lot of parallels. But technically, right now, the S&P is still in a correction territory. And when I say correction, I mean down 10 to 20%. I think the S&P's like lowest level intraday was somewhere you know, right below 20%, but it didn't close below 20%. So not to get all semantic but that means that it hasn't fallen into bear market yet. But you know, that's really important. I mean, as we've seen, you know, this 20% line, especially um, on a closing level, it has been a really big psychological barrier for investors. I mean, historically, it's been like that too. It's kind of been the line between, okay, well, this is a normal sell-off and wow, it's time to panic. Like we're heading into a crisis mode here. Watching the markets, we see a lot of fear, a lot of fear getting a little bit better, a lot of confusing economic data, especially in the context of the Fed hiking rates aggressively. But for now, it seems like we're on the way up. At my screen right now, and the S&P is up about 1.4% today. Um, We've seen a nice little rebound from a few weeks ago. But there's still a lot of risk and change to consider. And one thing I'm thinking a lot about is the fact that this market may struggle to get back to the highs anytime soon, especially because the Fed is so into fighting inflation right now at all costs. And the stock market, with so many households owning stocks at the moment, It's a great dynamic, but it gives the Fed more incentive to kind of talk the market down if it gets too hot. Clay, there are a lot of things we're thinking about today, but that's a good little summary of a bunch of different tentacles we're trying to tie together. 
One of the things I almost find interesting with these corrections or recessions, you look at, say, what happened in 2018, 2019. That was just like a few months. You know, the markets kind of got spooked and investors come back around and the market comes right back. But then you look at, say, times like the 2000 tech bubble or the 2008 financial crisis. It's like many months of that downward trends. And we're kind of at that like sweet spot where it's kind of like, okay, what's going to happen here? You know, the market hit highs a few months ago. And now we're kind of just waiting and seeing what's actually going to happen with all these kind of uh, headwinds that the markets are facing. Yeah. Well, the one thing I'll say there is that the difference between the 2000s tech bubble, the 2008 financial crisis, and what we're seeing right now is we're still not sure if we're about to hit an economic recession. I mean, surprisingly, with all the fear that's out there, economic data still looks pretty decent. And I'm, you know, I'm a typical analyst in that I look at economic data and earnings. I consider those the fundamentals of the market. And it's really hard if you just look at the economy to say that we're in a recession at the moment. And you know, when markets fall outside of recessions, the rebound based on history tends to be pretty quick. But this is a little different. Of course, you probably heard the word unprecedented so many times over the past two years, but we really are in unprecedented times and we're dealing with economy that's fine right now, but a lot of changes underfoot, especially related to monetary policy and fiscal policy. I mean, the government's pulling back spending compared to the past few years. So there are a lot of changes and people are just having a really, including me, people are having a really hard time digesting all these changes and what they can mean about the future. I almost characterize it as, is a crisis happening right now? No. But could a crisis happen down the road? Maybe. And that seems to be what we're focusing on. Itoro is also involved in the crypto markets. And crypto and Bitcoin in particular has been almost talked about as this uncorrelated asset. This, you know, it doesn't move in the same direction as stocks, but that's not what we've really seen recently. Crypto's also come down along with the stock market. So I'm curious what your general thoughts are on that market as well. Yeah, you're right. So Eddie Toro, you know, we dabble a lot in crypto. We see a lot of customers investing in crypto these days. But we have that general, you know, younger customer base as well. It skews toward millennials and Gen Z. Uh, and if you think about it, younger investors tend to have those higher risk appetites because they have more leeway in front of them to invest. Uh, so the crypto market's very front of mind of me. We are in a bit of a crypto winner, it seems. I actually found out that was a phrase a few days ago. So now I'm using it constantly. But yeah, we're, we seem to be in a bit of a crypto winter. And it seems to, you know, there seems to be a lot of factors behind it. We saw what happened, Terra and the stablecoin collapse. And there's a lot of nervousness in that sector right now, or that part of the crypto market. But it all kind of boils down to the Fed's policy. And the Fed eyeing higher rates If you step back, it is a bit hard to connect that to the crypto market. But when you think of crypto as a growth investment, as something we're investing in right now, because we see the future potential of blockchain technology and the future potential of decentralized finance, it makes sense why people are feeling a little bit nervous and stepping out a bit. Because if you want to boil down the current environment as rates go higher, it's basically like, okay, the future is getting discounted here because higher rates discount the value of future cash flows. Investors are really, you know, thinking more now versus later. They're saying, I don't know what I can value that future potential at. I'll just take what I can get now and not a day later. And that unfortunately, you know, hits young markets, young markets with uh, you know, hopefully a lot of potential, like crypto, you know, Bitcoin all the way down to the altcoins. 
we're looking at it and uh, we're constantly reminding our customers that if you have time on your side, you know, there are a lot of really good reasons to feel bullish on crypto at the moment. There's a lot of there's just a lot of innovation going on, but you know, you just have to be patient. You have to, you know, kind of wait out these crypto winners. They happen every once in a while. And that's just the nature of investing in a young market. I'm really curious. Have you seen any interesting data behind how these individual retail investors look at crypto relative to stocks? Have you seen any data how much they're actually invested in crypto or just what their overall sentiment and how they kind of view the asset class? I'm curious because a lot of younger investors are very new to the markets and they're going to view kind of the investing landscape a lot different than say your boomers and those nearing retirement. Yeah. So we do a lot of really cool work around this. There's one survey that we run. It's a quarterly survey. We call it the Retail Investor Beat. And it's basically where we talk to 1,000 investors, all age groups, all investing platforms, all walks of life. And we ask them a series of pretty basic questions about how they're investing and how their strategies have kind of changed over the past three months. And in that survey, I pointed out because we ask like crypto-focused questions in every single one of those surveys. And one of them is, well, this is an asset specific question, but one of them is just, you know, what are you investing in and what do you plan to invest in over the next 12 months? And if you look at the age groups that we survey, we look at 18 to 34 year olds, we look at 35 to 44 year olds, 45 to 54, and then 55 plus. And if you look at the 18 to 34 age group, they're investing and have plans to invest in crypto more than even domestic stocks, you know, US stocks, which is just so surprising to me, especially coming from a traditional finance background. And, you know, the fact that we don't see that same trend in the 45 to 54 age group or the 55 plus age group really tells me that there is this kind of yearning for, you know, this decentralized system. One thing that we really like to talk about at Etoro is the fact that investing hasn't been approachable for so long. I mean, I worked, I've worked in finance my whole career and I just started investing outside of my retirement fund five years ago because even I thought it was intimidating. But the really good story about crypto is that there is education needed and parts of it are a bit more unapproachable. But on the whole, the conversation about, around crypto has been very welcoming. And I think that's been a main reason why we've seen these younger investors feel a little more comfortable getting into crypto. It's almost like it started from an approachable state. And that really helped it catch on with current generations who are more, you know, risk friendly and technology friendly. And I think it's a really good kind of underlying foundation for the space as well. I mean, I tweeted this morning, I said, you know, this is the one chart that makes me very bullish on crypto. And it was that question that, you know, I just told you about, you know, what assets are you planning on investing in over the next 12 months? 53% of investors, 18 to 34, said that they're planning on investing in crypto uh, versus about 30 to 35% for domestic stocks. It's just such a cool movement. I don't think people give enough credit to the fact that crypto is really this kind of statement on you know, where the financial system is now and where the younger generations see it going. There are a lot of thoughts that come to mind as you answer that question. This week, I listened to one of Preston Pish's episodes on our network, and he brought on these guys where they created this course. It was called Looking Glass Education, and it kind of outlines our like whole financial system, and it talks about how Bitcoin could essentially play into that. And the way you're talking about this data where these younger investors are more apt or more open to investing in cryptocurrencies makes me a little bit excited and 
these younger investors have just seen so much volatility. It's almost like they see the cards they've been dealt and they're like, the traditional way of saving might not work for me because it's things are getting so much more expensive. You got housing and just like the cost of retirement and just the cost of goods in general makes me pretty optimistic going forward that these younger investors are trying to adapt in some way at least and seeing the potential of something like Bitcoin and planning for retirement. And speaking of just like the higher cost of things, inflation is definitely top of mind today. I believe grocery bills where I'm at are up over 20%. The average gas price in the US is up over 50%. And it's no doubt that the American consumer is feeling these inflationary pressures. Do you have any tips for how people can work through these pressures? Cost pressure is so real. You know, I've noticed it in my grocery bill. In fact, I went to the beach with my in-laws last weekend and there's this deli we go to and <laughs> there's a Reuben sandwich that I get that uh, was $8.50 last year. And like, I live in North Carolina, by the way, we're thinking North Carolina prices, but it was $8.50 last year and this year it was $15. And I don't know if we can ascribe all of that to inflation, but that's the thing with inflation too. Like if you look at the consumer price index, you know, prices, according to CPI, are up about 8% year over year, which is a pretty quick pace of inflation. But it's also very uh, situation specific. It all depends on, you know, if you own a home versus if you rent a home, you know, what you buy at the grocery store, or what you buy with your discretionary income. Your experience of inflation can differ so much depending on your lifestyle, basically. So I think that there is some truth to, you know, inflation hurting different classes of people more and different groups of people more depending on what their budget is and what their spending habits are. But I think the biggest tip I can give with inflation is to really assess your income. Your income is your biggest tool against inflation. And the job market is slowing a bit right now, but it's still very hot. And one of the easiest ways on inflation is to you know make sure your income kind of grows with it. Get a new job, start that side hustle, drive for a car sharing service. It's hard to also give tips on inflation because it's such an uncontrollable dynamic of the economy. Like you're probably going to deal with it in some form or fashion. But the other thing I'd advise is that in the periods of high inflation, it is so important to put your money to work. Inflation is eating into the value of your cash and it makes it even more important to reach out and accept some of that uncertainty and risk to hope that your money can take on a return. I wrote this piece actually when I was at Ally about you know when inflation sticks around, which it's funny. I wrote it about a year ago. And in the back of my mind, I was like, oh, inflation will just be a transitory thing. I'm writing this you know, just in case inflation sticks around. And turns out it did. But it's all about the S&P's uh, historical returns, the S&P's historical returns with dividends as well, You know, getting that quick income on your money um, from historically more stable companies. And the S&P and stocks in general, depending on how diversified you are, uh, have proven to be a really effective way of fighting inflation by investing. And you know, certainly you can look at other risk assets as well. It's not working super well at the moment, but it also makes sense to think a little bit more long-term. Start early, invest now, and watch your money hopefully grow over time. And I'm a sucker. I'm an investing nerd, right? So I'm always going to tell you to invest. But it's just so important to think about what your money is doing for you in high inflation environments. Yeah, I definitely agree with what you said there with keeping an eye out for a potential new job, you know, if you're ready to make that jump. And then obviously being invested in the markets in the inflationary system we're in, investors are always going to benefit over the long term, you know, those that have the right mindset and buy and hold the right assets over the long time horizon. And 
This just came to mind related to the inflation. You know, a big piece of personal finance and saving and investing is you need to limit your expenses to some degree. And when I think about this, I always think about the big three kind of categories, what they call them, like the big three expenses, and that's food, housing, and transportation. You know, you don't have to be like totally frugal and a total skimp on like all three of these categories. But if you just focus on what area do I maybe not care all that much about? Like, do I have to have the fanciest car, like the huge pickup truck consumes all this gas that's now very, very expensive? Maybe you could have a paid off car, you know, that's more reasonable and allow you to absorb that inflationary pressure, say in the grocery bill, where you really don't want to cut back on some of the things that you really enjoy and you really like. So kind of prioritizing that I think is really important too. Yeah, I love that you said that, Clay. That's the splurge areas theory, right? It's like you want to go treat yourself. And I I feel this way too. You know, in my life, I want to treat myself. But if you really focus on one or two areas and you try to, you know, kind of prioritize where you're spending your money, you can still get that feeling of, you know, I have this nice thing, or you know, I I am able to kind of feel the benefits of, you know, saving my money, making that income but you're able to contain it. I think that's really important. Like Matt, my husband and I, we talk about our splurge areas all the time. And ours right now are food and experiences. I mean, we have older cars, we drive those. We don't spend a ton on housing, but we ball out on food and experiences because those are, you know, those are kind of what we're putting as a priority in our lives right now. And that can shift too. You can you can pick a splurge area and then like in a month, in a year, or whatever, change it. But defining those splurge areas is a really cool personal finance trick, if you will. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So, 
If you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. All right, back to the show. Yeah, I, I love that. Totally agree with what you're saying there too. Should we be adjusting our investment portfolios with inflation or what are some things we should be considering regarding our investments during this time? Yeah. So I'll start off with saying none of this is investment advice uh, because I don't know you listener, your situation. It all depends on you know your goals, your needs, your risk tolerances, your cash balances, all of that. So none of this is investing advice, but if we're thinking theoretically, there are some ways you can kind of optimize your portfolio in times of high inflation. So what I mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, thinking now versus later, it all kind of boils down to that. You know, thinking about how to get those quick returns on your money without having to wait to realize those returns and those cash flows. Working now versus later, we're thinking about companies with cash flows now, companies with profits now, value stocks, stocks that are trading closer to their earnings, to their current earnings. But yeah, just try to think about what's working now versus later. You know, value stocks tend to have current cash flows and they trade closer to, you know, the cash flows they're making now. So there's less room for guesstimating and uncertainty there. I also like to talk about dividends. Dividends I mentioned a little bit earlier, but they're, you know, quarterly annual payments that you get back from a company. And those make a big difference because first of all, higher rates discount and kind of lower the value of future cash flows. So if you bring those cash flows in, uh, they, they tend to be less affected by higher rates and they add up over time. Dividends, they tend to add up, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. They tend to add up over time if you're responsible enough to reinvest them. Again, think now versus later. In a period of low growth but high rates, it is important to search for what's working now as well. You know, what tends to work well um, with the economy and the place that it is. I mean, at eToro, if you want to get technical, we really like the chief cyclical sectors like financials, energy, you know, stuff that people, you know, need now. I said it in an earlier note, but it's it's almost like think about what investors need regardless of the environment. They need food on their tables. They need gas in their cars. They need, you know, power to turn the lights on. That kind of stuff is, you know, stuff that works regardless of where inflation is. And especially now with uncertainty and with those fears around a recession, those stocks could be almost like comfort food for investors. And honestly, we've seen that this year. We've seen a lot of those steady eddy companies perform well relative to the index. Think now versus later and think about what performs well, regardless of what economic environment we're in. Yeah, I think many investors learned some tough lessons over the past couple of years when the interest rates are near zero and you see interest rates rise. Like you mentioned, those high growth, high flyers are going to be hit really hard. And some might be confused why that is. And you hit on it how the market discounts the future earnings. You know, Many investors are calculating the value of those companies based on those earnings discounted back to today. And when the interest rates rise, that hurts the growth stocks and doesn't affect the value stocks near as much. 
And even some of those sectors, you know, like energy, energy's up like a lot over the last few months. That might surprise some people how any stocks could be up given the environment we're in. Energy is super chaotic right now. I have like make all these sector charts and energy is just like off the axis. And I'm like, man, I love it. And I hate it all at the same time. Like aesthetically, this is not great. Yeah, I keep hearing how energy, in hindsight, we can say that energy was very underinvested and now we, don't, we aren't producing near enough oil and all these other sources of energy. Do you have any other general rules of thumb people can use to ensure they aren't taking this excessive risk that many might have seen, the risk they might have taken over the past year or two? Yeah. So first of all, if you're thinking about risk, you're doing better than 90% of investors. A lot of people think about return, but they don't think about risks. If you're talking about risk, pat yourself on the back. You're doing great. But when you start to think about risk, risk is a tough thing to define and it's very personal as well. If you want to sit down and have an honesty hour with yourself about the risk you can take, think about you know, when you need the money you're investing because that's the number one question you should answer. Because as you go out in time, as you give your money time to kind of season and as you give your investments time to kind of play out, you typically can take on a little bit more risk. The other thing is it's helpful and cash isn't the sexiest thing to talk about these days in a high inflation environment, but having some cash on hand, hand, having a stable balance that you can kind of dip from if you need for expenses and other investments, having that stable cash balance could help you also take risk, take a little bit more risk as well, because you always have that kind of mode of cash and that emergency fund to tap back into if you needed it. And think about your emotions as well. Even if you're in the best financial position, you have, a, you have high cash balances, you're investing for the long term, you can get spooked off by swings. It's not easy to invest in a heavily volatile market. So you also have to ask yourself, you know, what can I handle emotionally here? Can I turn my brain off and not look at my brokerage account when markets are falling and Bitcoin is 60% from the highs? And you know, this tech stock I really like is 50% from its highs. So there are a lot of things you can consider there. Another thing you can do too is kind of stress test your portfolio. You know, think of all the, all the different securities and assets you're invested in and almost simulate what would happen if one of them fell 20%, like kind of go through the motions in your head about how you would rebalance and, you know, where you would find your cash and if you would cash out. Um, sometimes I can give you a little bit of comfort. So you know that you kind of have a plan when things go south or awry on you. But there are a bunch of different things you can do to kind of define the risks you want to take. And once you start investing and you've defined that risk, you know, set your targets. Really understand where you want to buy in, where you want to sell, how long you want to be invested. So you're really relying on the numbers instead of your emotions. And I hate using this word, but diversify your investments. Diversification is such a weird word. I almost can't find a good synonym for it, even though it's a word that everybody seems to hate. It's like medicine. Really spread that risk out among your portfolio so you're not focusing on just one asset class at a time. You can certainly do that. But as we saw over the past year, if you focus too much on growth stocks, you probably have had a really rough 2022. And I don't know if some people have been able to handle it emotionally. Think about it. Quantify the risk. Define the risk that you can take. Set your targets before you invest and stick to them. And then spread that risk out. Looking back over the past couple of years, it's honestly been a lot of fun. I've been talking about investing and investments 
you know, with so many different people, I'm texting people what feels like every day about what's going on, what investments we're looking at. A lot of my friends and I own many of the same, say, individual stocks or say Bitcoin or just we just enjoy and just love talking about the markets. And it gives people this sort of camaraderie or this like community feel. You know, COVID has kind of like separated us. You know, many people are working from home, working remote. And it's like investing has like brought so many of us together, which is kind of funny and just super interesting. And you can just look at the Wall Street bets forum. You know, there are so many people I would have never thought would ever care about investing. For some reason, they're like drawn into this Wall Street bets forum, this camaraderie and just this community that like people feel drawn in. They're not just trying to make money, they're kind of in it with other people. And I think that's really cool. And I think I saw on the website that Eturo is like a social investing platform. Could you talk a bit about the role that you've seen community play in the investment field? Yeah, definitely. So Etoro is all about community. Uh, you're right. We're basically this... Uh, if you combine social media with an investing platform, that's Etoro. You can invest with other communities. You can invest in what other investors are investing in. It's very meta when I say it. You can invest in <laughs> other crypto portfolios that investors have uh, you know, kind of put together for you. And we really encourage the open dialogue among our customers. You know, what's going on in the markets today? What do you think about this stock? Just because community, when everybody comes together, the almost like mashing together of thoughts and experiences and perspectives really can bring about a good result for everybody. And COVID and community, man, that's such an interesting behavioral use case, like almost case study, right? I was talking to this psychologist friend of mine um, about six months ago, all about like COVID and community. And he brought up this really interesting point about what isolation kind of did to our brains and how we just craved community so much when everything was shut down during COVID that it really made us search in um, strange and unusual places for that community. And at the same time, we were really stressed about money. I started my job at Ally in February of 2020. And my first thought when markets started falling was, oh man, am I going to keep this job? I don't know. Like I, I work for a bank and I have no idea what's going to happen to this bank because of this weird pandemic that seems to be you know, shutting down the economy and hurting all these small businesses. You take the fact that we were all isolated, we were all craving community, and we were really stressed about money too. And it turned into this almost really cool situation where we started talking about it with friends over our Zoom happy hours, you know, over the internet, just really talking about our money stresses and about investing and how we can really get by in such a, an unstable environment, honestly. You know, there are pros and cons to it too. Uh, of course, we've, we've seen a lot of pros and that the money conversation has become even more prevalent. It's no longer taboo to talk about money. And honestly, in that situation, everybody wins. Like we're all being transparent with each other. But at the same time, we have seen a little bit of groupthink in markets. And there are those you know, risks with community too, you know, getting swept up in the crowd and kind of investing with everybody else while ignoring your own goals and needs. But I love the fact that people are talking about investing. I've had a bunch of friends approach me about investing their money and um, what's going on in the markets. I watch Fed press conferences every time they happen. You know, those press conferences after the Fed announcements. And it's been crazy to even see like the amount of people watching those on YouTube. Like I think in the last press conference, I saw like 20,000 people at some point, you know, watching Fed Chair Jay Powell talk about monetary policy. 
So it's cool to see, you know, finance go mainstream because it, it really helps the fact that it is going mainstream like really helps people understand what's going on and how these like vague headlines and how these kind of obscure market events really impact their money. That's kind of a lot there, but I could talk about this for hours, just, you know, kind of what COVID did to our brains and what isolation did to our brains and, you know, how that's really turned into a market that's turning more and more toward retail investors' favor. You mentioned groupthink, and this is related to something I was chatting with Trey Lockerbie about yesterday, how you know we host a podcast and we bring all these different types of thinkers, investors, and just viewpoints onto the show. And that's one of the best things about being a host is like, I hear one opinion and it sounds very convincing. But what I haven't heard yet is the other side of the argument. You know, many people are biased in their views and opinions and being able to like either listen to a podcast or just tune into those different viewpoints. I think is super important because it helps balance out your biases. Because you know, if you only listen to a growth stock investor in 2021, you might think, oh, I have to put all my money in growth stocks because this is the future. These are the huge trends. And then you can just get almost totally wiped out in one year's time. And that can be a tough lesson to learn you know, and very expensive lesson. Related to this community aspect, I was thinking about how many people in finance are male. And I personally have a hard time getting female guests on the show. I've seen some podcasts pop up that are in the finance space that are more geared towards females. And that's really good to see because they've been really popular. I'm curious if you have any tips for you know women or just people that are new to the investing space in general, what tips you would give them to you know get started investing and get off on the right footing? Gosh, don't I know it. The finance industry is very heavily male. And that's just kind of how it's shaken out. But unfortunately, it's the reality that we're all kind of dealing with right now. Um, it always struck me as funny too, because money is just so personal. Like I remember reading Morgan Housel's The Psychology of Money, which by the way, is a wonderful book. Definitely read it. Uh, it'll blow your mind. But he brought up a point in there about how you know money is personal and it, your view of money really depends on your past experiences. But at the same time, we look at the financial advisor community and it's overwhelmingly like white men. You know, you deal with this thing that's such an emotionally, you know, money being so emotionally charged, you take this to a financial advisor and you really put some trust in them to, you know, kind of sort out your situation and ultimately help devise a plan to meet your goals. But then for this like highly personalized thing, you don't have somebody in front of you that kind of fits your situation and understands your situation. I always thought that was really strange. And I think we've learned a lot about how money is just so personal and emotional, especially over these past two years. But anyway, yes, finance is a heavily skewed industry toward men. And it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy too. I mean, honestly, you can't be what you can't see. If we can't make any progress there, it's just going to snowball. But luckily, we have seen a lot of progress. We've seen in a lot of different data that women have felt more empowered to invest, especially over the past two years. The industry is really focused on education, which benefits anybody coming into the industry because there's a bridge kind of across that moat that was just so big for so long. Like the industry was just so gate kept because of like all this jargon and all these weird systemic quirks that nobody really understood. And then there's crypto too. I mean, new products like crypto, we talked a little bit earlier about how crypto has been a little more accessible and the conversation has been a little more inclusive and open. That's really helped, you know, open up the finance industry as well. And it's even if you're not a crypto believer, even if you're skeptical of crypto, wouldn't invest in it yourself. At least you see what this environment is doing in terms of bringing people in. 
I think there are a lot of things we could fix in the industry, but I don't want to lose sight of the progress we've made so far. And I guess in terms of tips for women investing, I mean, the biggest tip I would give them is to do it, you know, dip your toes in and stay engaged. For me, the best way to learn about investing was to just try it myself. And I mentioned this earlier, but I was really intimidated for so long to invest. And then one day I just took a couple hundred dollars, threw it in an S&P mutual fund. And I was like, all right, let's do this. I don't need this. This is extra money. Just toss it in there. And there are a lot of behavioral uh, reasons for why starting small and you know being consistent uh, can help you start to feel more comfortable with the process. But biggest tip is just do it. You know, start really small, even if it's twenty dollars. Really test your hand out. Don't be afraid to try different things. See what investments work for you, especially you know for what you want to do with your money, and you know ask questions. Try to find a community that works for you. I've been lucky that you know Twitter has been such an awesome community for me. I've met so many smart people, including you, Clay. Uh, I've met so many smart people over Twitter, and um, you know the dialogue has really been great. Try to find that friend group or that community that really supports you. Luckily, it's easier than ever to do that. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. 
Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash MI. netsuite.com slash MI. That's netsuite.com slash MI. All right, back to the show. Very good points. Thank you for sharing that. I'd like to transition to talk a bit about real estate. You mentioned earlier that you bought a home recently and you've been studying the real estate market a little bit too. And this is a challenge for millennials. You know, The real estate market seems to just keep going up, oftentimes outpaces inflation even, you know, outpaces incomes as well, which makes it very difficult to go out and buy a home, especially when there's a lot more buyers than sellers and you're getting into things like bidding wars and you know, the things I hear is just crazy. Luckily, I'm in the Midwest and home prices for the most part are reasonable compared to many areas here in the States. What are some of the trends you've seen for millennials in general getting into the housing market? Yeah, gosh, it's a cold world out there for home buyers right now. Like I mentioned earlier, I live in the South. I live in Charlotte. So I'm not dealing with the like vicious housing markets that we see in like Southern California and major metropolitan areas. But it's not exactly easy here either. Charlotte's a rapidly growing city. So, you know, I'd like to say I've seen a little bit of a, a little bit of a hot housing market here. But, you know, I think the housing market is so interesting because it's partially an economic story and then it's partially a demographic story. Economically, rates have been low for so long that that's really pushed housing prices up. We've seen, uh, you know, a lot of people benefit from the wealth effect. You know, stocks rising mostly over the past decade, you know, the S&P being in its almost one of its longest bull markets in history and the housing market kind of participating along with that. But we're also seeing a lot of millennials and millennials, by the way, biggest generation out there right now. uh, We're seeing a lot of millennials getting to that home buying age, you know, their early 30s where they want to start that family. They want to put roots down. And we've seen a lot of millennial home buyers emerge from that. In fact, millennials were actually the biggest generational buyers of homes last year, uh, according to some National Association of Realtors data I saw. It's definitely a trend. And if you believe that demographics are driving the housing market more than economic factors, then you'd have to think that housing prices will continue to go up just because this huge cohort of millennials that are coming of age are you know, looking to buy houses. And you know, houses too... It's a tough environment to buy a house in, but people are also so emotional about their houses. I mean, it's the roof over their heads. It's where you have to live. You have to kind of care about the house you end up purchasing. On one hand, it's a really tough housing market. But on the other hand, we've seen a lot of consumers stretch themselves to fit this housing market, you know, wave inspections, you know, search out of their budget, put down smaller down payments. And those are not necessarily bad trends, but it just goes to show how much of a pull there is, especially in the millennial cohort, to buy that perfect house. It's a really tough housing market. Personally, very happy that we bought a year ago. I bet you are. I'm in Nebraska and not too many people... It's almost like there's a saying that like you either stay in Nebraska or like people are leaving. Like No one's really moving to Nebraska. You know, The weather's like terrible in the winter. But seeing how expensive you know, areas like California are getting, I talked to some people that are in the real estate space and they're like, many of the buyers that are coming to us have like moved from these very expensive areas and came to the Midwest. And the housing difference is just like crazy to think about the price differences. And 
since I'm in the investing space, I have many people come to me like, what's going to happen to the housing market in the next year or two? It's like, it's the impossible question of pull out a crystal ball and like, tell me, is housing going to go up or down over the next year or two? Is the housing bubble going to crash? Let me throw the impossible question over to you. What are your thoughts on how millennials can approach the real estate market with interest rates are higher, which means the monthly payments are higher? But we could see rates eventually come back down. So what's your advice for someone that's looking to buy a house you know, in today's market? Yeah, gosh. Well, my first piece of advice would be don't try to time the housing market. I think we all learned our lesson with COVID there. The economy went into a recession, but housing prices didn't dip at all. In fact, they kept going higher. So the housing market, like all markets, is incredibly tough to time. Buying a house is a personal decision. Um, It's tough to view it in an investment lens, especially if it's your primary house. Because like I said earlier, it's the roof over your head. You have to like it. And to kind of monetize the roof over your head can make for a very miserable experience. So don't time the housing market. Buy when you're ready, because ultimately it is a personal decision. There's a lot of time and money that can get caught up in buying a house. Understand if that lifestyle is you know, good enough for you. Don't view rent as throwing money away. I hate when people come to me and say, Oh, you know, why do you rent? Like rent is throwing money away. Because any cost that you pay to have a roof over your head is not throwing money away. And renting can give you optionality, it can give you a capped cost every month where you know you're not always worried about being on the hook for, you know, an AC system that broke and that's a ten thousand dollar expense right there. Don't hate on renting. Um, you can certainly build wealth while renting. But try to find something that works for you. You know, think about what kind of house you want. You know, when Matt and I were searching for a house, we all t- we first knew that we didn't want a fixer upper because a you know maybe you pay a little less for it, but that's uh, cash you eventually have to pay over time to renovate it. And b we're not handy people. We're not good at house chores, taking care of the lawn, renovating the kitchen. We don't find joy in that. We're not good at that. So we had to find a house that kind of worked for us there. But financially, I'd also mention too that throw the old rules out of the book for buying a house. If you're like me, your parents have probably told you to like put that 20% down payment down, you know, look for the shortest mortgage term possible. And that may have worked back when they were buying houses in like the late 80s and early 90s. But right now, rates are still historically historically low, even at 5%. And it is really hard to save up that 20% down payment. Having a big down payment definitely makes you a stronger buyer. It can make you more competitive. But at the same time, you don't need to put down 20% to buy a house. There are plenty of different options you can get out there um, that don't require you to put down that 20%, including taking on PMI or possibly looking at an FHA loan. Think about all that old advice, the stuff that your parents tell you, and really try to adapt it to what the environment looks like today. Um, just because you don't check all those boxes doesn't mean you can't buy a house. But again, you know, think of it as a personal decision and don't rush it. One of the big issues with entering the real estate market, especially with high inflation, is like, what do you do with all the cash you know you put on the side? Just say, for example, a house is we'll just say three hundred thousand dollars, and you're putting three and a half percent down. So that means you're going to have to save, say, close to fifteen grand for the down payment, and then you have closing costs on top of that. Do you have any tips for what people do with this money while they're saving up to buy a house? And maybe touch on some of the tips and tricks you did as you saved up for your own house over this past year. I get this question a lot from friends because surprise, I'm a millennial and all my friends are trying to buy houses right now. But 
when you're thinking about a short-term goal, like saving up for a house down payment, you really need to consider capital protection over growth. And, you know, different things work for different people, but markets have shown us that, especially this year, year to date, that sell-offs can happen, ups, ups and downs are normal, and sometimes they take a few years to recover. So you can certainly prioritize growth over, um, you know, kind of protecting your money and try investing in stocks and crypto to see if it can grow, but not always a guarantee that you're going to get that money back before you need it to buy that house or put down that down payment. I always tell people, and this is not investing advice, never investing advice, but I always tell people that with a short-term goal, there's just a lot of uncertainty about the future. Even though inflation is high, you might just have to stash it away in a savings account, a money market account, or in bonds, just to make sure you have that cash available for when you need it. That's what Matt and I did. We stuck it in a savings account and we said, okay, this is our house fund and we're not going to touch it. We're not going to invest it. We're going to get it to a point where we're comfortable with how much we have saved up so we can buy that house and put down that down payment. But I don't want to discourage people either. There, You really don't have to save up too much money to buy a house. It is prudent to do so because again, it can make you a competitive buyer and it can put you in a good position where you have a good solid base of equity you know, when you buy that house. But I mean, there are a bunch of different options these days. You can look into first-time home buyer grants. Um, you can look into FHA loans where you don't need to put as much down. Don't think that you need to be stashing your cash into a savings account forever before you can buy a house um, because it all boils down to the fact that it's a lifestyle decision. And there are many different ways to, you know, get to that point in your life where you can end up buying that house. You keep mentioning that it's not investment or not financial advice. And you know, I kind of want to expand on that piece because you mentioned earlier Morgan Housel's book, how you know personal finance is personal. Each person's situation is different than each other person. So like you have to assess what makes most sense for you and what's going to work for you. And there is no perfect, there is no one size fits all answer. You just have to think about you know the trade-offs with each financial decision you have and try and make the best one for yourself. And don't like beat yourself up if you don't make the perfect decision. Like say you didn't buy a house last year while rates are low. Now rates are much higher now. Well, don't beat yourself up over that because you're not going to get every personal finance decision perfect. We can all just try and follow these general rules of thumb. Yeah, I think you're totally right. There's just so much gray area in personal finance too. I love when people, and I'm guilty of this too, but I love when people step out on social media and they say, don't take on any debt or you know, they make it a zero-sum game. Because it's just so easy to do that. It's so easy to do that for attention, for you know the likes and the retweets. But that really isn't how personal finance works. It really comes down to what your goals are, what your needs are, what exactly you're going for, and what you can handle, what kind of risk you can tolerate. You really have to play your own game. And kind of going back to the whole, this is not investing advice thing, it, it really... Like every piece of financial content out there, you can read it and you can learn a lot, but you ultimately have to adapt it to your own situation and everybody's situation is different. You've also done some interesting research related to retirement and millennials. It seems like the narrative is almost that millennials haven't been dealt a really bad hand relative to the older generations, which I would definitely agree with You know, from a financial perspective. Despite the better hand being dealt to baby boomers, it seems like there's still this crisis of many of them not having enough money saved for retirement. 
are millennials positioned to suffer that same fate eventually, or are they potentially better positioned actually? Yeah, you know, it's really hard to say because, and this isn't like a millennials versus boomers comment, but it's more that it's really tough to prioritize investing, especially retirement investing. It's tough to prioritize that and conceptualize it. It's a bit of a learning curve to get started. And we've talked about many times in this conversation about how there's a bit of a there's a bit of a learning curve and a moat between um, kind of learning about investing and actually doing it. But at the same time, it's really hard to know how much you're going to need for retirement. I think back to you know a decade ago or so, we had that show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And everybody was like, wow, a million dollars. That's so much money. Well, now we're figuring out after you know a few years of inflation and also a few years of asset prices growing, uh, that $1 million isn't actually a lot of money. And if you think about it, if you do the math, you're probably going to need more than a million dollars when you head to retirement. So that fact in itself is really daunting. And I think those two factors put together, the fact that it's really hard to prioritize investing and it's really hard to conceptualize how much you need, it scares a lot of people off and it makes them think, you know, I'll deal with this tomorrow. And then they say it over and over again until they're 50 and they realize they're going to retire in 18 years. Hopefully millennials are in a better spot. I will say millennials, I think, have the upper hand when it comes to education. Uh, there's just so many more ways to learn about investing these days and to learn about the power of investing early. But you know, on the other hand, many of us weren't lucky enough to get pensions, right? When our parents were working, uh, pensions were a lot more popular than they are now. But at the same time, I mean, we have 401ks. Um, 401ks actually aren't a terribly old concept. They were introduced in 1978, and Roth IRAs uh, or you know other you know tax friendly or tax advantaged accounts weren't introduced until the late 1990s. It's a bit of a different situation, but I would attribute, you know, if anybody struggles with retiring, I'd probably attribute it to those first two factors. The fact that it's really hard to start and it's very hard to conceptualize what you need. In a way, I'm like really optimistic about, you know, many millennials and Gen Z types in planning for retirement. And one of the reasons is they have like access to social media and just the internet in general you know, it's access at their fingertips. And many, I think, older generations just haven't come around to, you know, being able to have that at their fingertips and like do that research and, you know, try and find sources that they can actually trust. I think many younger generations are finding that they have these tools that they can use to empower themselves and, you know, learn about things like investing or like the stock market or just like how to actually plan for retirement because you can't count on your employer and the government to just do it for you. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think that that's a huge advantage that we haven't fully realized the power of yet. And the fact that, you know, investors, retail investors have so much power in general because they have education and information behind them. I think we're seeing a lot of, you know, this is beside retirement, but I think we're also seeing a lot of companies and um, you know, public and traded companies that are starting to realize that power and they're starting to kind of curate what they're offering and how they you know, market their offerings and their financial information to the retail investor. It's not just SEC filings anymore. We're seeing a lot of companies, um, a lot of company executives and a lot of brands step out on social media and say, hey, this is what's happening. This is what we're thinking. And it's really introduced this uh, you know, interesting dynamic of keeping individual investors like you and me looped in on everything that's happening. Some of what we discussed today might make the future look somewhat bleak for uh, some younger investors. So let's close out the episode with a bit of a positive spin. 
What's the best thing a young investor can do to maybe set themselves up for financial success? The economy might look bleak right now, but you have the power. You have more power than you think. The best thing that you can do is start early and stay engaged. Start early, meaning you know, even if you feel like you're not at the point where you can invest, just toss a few dollars to, into a brokerage account and see if you can kind of build from there. Because once you get involved, once you get in the habit of putting money into a brokerage account or uh, you know, investing money towards your future self, then it's, it's a lot easier from then on out from a behavioral perspective and from a financial perspective because you have that allotment in your budget to do it. And compounding is just so powerful. Having time on your side and allowing your investments to compound over years and decades can make such a huge difference. I clearly work in the finance industry. I think and talk about compounding all the time. And I myself will run you know, compounding calculations and I'll be amazed by the results too. Uh, it's just so hard to comprehend you know, what compounding can do to your portfolio. And we were just talking about retirement investing too. I mean, that's a perfect example of when starting early can be such a massive benefit because you're investing over multiple decades and letting all of the you know, gains snowball on top of gains. So that would be my best piece of advice for a millennial investor. You know, really just start early and know the power that you have. Uh, and talk about it too. Talk about your investing journey with your friends. Um, I know it's still a little tough to talk about money, but we're in a tough position right now. <laughs> you know, we're all worn out for the past two years. I promise you, um, you know, if you're the first person to speak up, everybody else will appreciate it. And if you can't talk about money with your friends, come to me. I'll talk money all day. I love that you mentioned the compounding piece. I think that when I was like 18 or 19, when I read Buffett's biography to figure out how he built his wealth, just reading about the compounding piece, how he built his fortune, like 99% of it passed his 65th birthday. When you start to run the numbers and understand how compounding actually works, I think that it's just like so powerful and so incredible. And you know, just a message you and I just want to spread as far and wide as we can. Callie, thank you so much for joining me today. I really, really appreciate it. I really enjoyed this conversation. Before we close out the episode, I want to give you a chance to give a handoff to what you're working on. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm an investment analyst at eToro. I write a weekly note called The Bottom Line. We post it on eToro's blog every Friday. So check that out. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Callie A. Boss. I post quite a bit of market analysis there and it's a bit of my personal Twitter as well. So you might see some tweets about the Tar Heels and my plug in uh, North Carolina. But you know, it's all fun and I love, love, love talking markets. So please reach out and please follow what I'm writing. Awesome. Thank you so much, Callie. Yeah. Thank you for having me. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review on the podcast app you're on. This will really help us in the search algorithm so others can discover the show as well. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources, as well as our TIP finance tool that Robert and I use to manage our own stock portfolios. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. 
This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.